All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our third week in the book of Ecclesiastes. I hope you guys have been finding this book at least half as interesting as I have. Uh, I stumbled on a quote about Ecclesiastes this week from a writer named Thomas Wolfe. Uh, Wolfe lived in the early 1900s, and he wasn't exactly known for being a uh, person of faith. But in one of his books, he has a character say this about Ecclesiastes. For all I have ever seen or learned, that book seems to me the noblest, the wisest, and the most powerful expression of man's life upon this earth, and also earth's highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. I am not given to dogmatic judgments in the matter of literary creation, but if I had to make one, I could say, I could only say that Ecclesiastes is the greatest single piece of writing I've ever known, and the wisdom expressed in it the most lasting and profound. So I hope we can identify at least a little bit with that kind of enthusiasm about this book. It's challenging, it can be depressing, but the wisdom expressed is lasting and profound. So over the last two weeks, we've looked at some of the observations of the teacher. The teacher is an old man who's reflecting on his life. He's a, a man who's lived, in many ways, a very uh, privileged life. He's been king over Israel. He's been very rich. And he's reflecting on his life. And so far, we've summarized several of his observations. So, so far, this is how we have summarized what he's, he's observed. He's observed that we have a holy ache that nothing in this world can satisfy. And last week we talked about how he identifies uh, several aspects of the nature of life that contribute to this holy ache. So we, we identified three. One is that life is incomprehensible. Uh, in other words, we can't fully understand why things are the way we are, or the way, why things are the way they are, and why we are the way we are. Um, there's something about life that just eludes our understanding, eludes our grasp. Two, life is often unjust. Sometimes wicked people prosper and relatively righteous people struggle. And three, life is impermanent. Death comes to all of us. So what do we gain for all of our toil and striving? The most obvious answer is that we all get the same thing, which is death. And all three of these observations about the harsh nature of life don't sit well with us. They, they trouble us. They feel wrong. And so Ecclesiastes forces us to confront the harsh realities of life. Most of us try to deny or ignore these harsh realities, but Ecclesiastes says we have to pay attention to them. We have to be honest about them. Now, why bother being honest about them? If we're honest about them, aren't they just going to lead us to despair? Well, there's a couple reasons why we should be honest about them. Uh, when we're honest about these harsh realities, they have power to do several things. One is that they have power to lead us to put our hope in God, because frankly, nothing else is with, worth putting our hope in. Uh, two, they have power to help us turn from our idols, because the harsh reality is that nothing else in life is going to satisfy us. And three, they have power to help us live well in the brief time on earth that we have. Now, the passage that we're looking at today is especially going to help us with that third category, living well in our brief time on earth. 
And specifically, it offers us wisdom on a topic that has relevance for all of us, which is the topic of work. You may have noticed that work is a reoccurring theme in Ecclesiastes. And it goes by several names, uh, labor, striving, and my favorite, toil. And verse uh, 22, chapter 2, verse 22, uh, uses all four of those. What does man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work, his pain and grief, even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is meaningless. Whatever you call it, work, striving, labor, toil, the teacher says it's meaningless. Now, remember, we talked about the last two weeks, how the Hebrew word that's being translated as meaningless is this word hevel, and its literal meaning is vapor. And the teacher is saying that all of our toil has this vapor-like quality to it. And if we're looking at life from the big picture, it's very hard to argue against that, right? Uh, we toil so that we can eat. But a few hours after we eat, we're hungry again. Or for some of us, just a few minutes later. Uh, we toil to clean the house, and then a week later or less, it's a mess again. Uh, we toil so that we can buy that nice new car, and then a decade or two passes, and that car is useless. We toil to acquire money and property, but no matter how much we gain, when we die, can't take it with us. Our toil is like vapor. It's a chasing after the wind. Now, one possible reaction to these observations is to say, well, forget about work then. I'm not doing it. There's no value in it. But for the majority of us, that is not an option. And it's not an option that the teacher would encourage us to, to uh, embrace, even if it was a possibility you'll notice the teacher assumes that work is an inevitable part of life. And he doesn't say, the best a man can do is eliminate all toil from his life. What he actually says is, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and, there it is, find satisfaction in his work. This, the teacher says, is the gift of God, to find satisfaction in our work. Now, that should lead us to a question, which is, how do we find satisfaction in our work if our work is vapor? It seems like the teacher is presenting us with you know, two contradictory teachings. On the one hand, work is vapor, but on the other hand, he encourages us to find satisfaction in it. So how do we resolve that? Well, I think the first thing the teacher would tell us if we're looking to find satisfaction in work, the first thing we need to do is we need to stop trying to find ultimate satisfaction in work. If we want to enjoy our, our work, we have to recognize it for what it is. There is a vapor-like quality to it, which means if we expect our work to be our source of significance and meaning and permanence, it's not going to be fun. Right? It will not be satisfying. Instead, it's going to be a constant source of anxiety. And nothing we ever do will feel like enough. We'll never feel like we can really rest. 
But on the other hand, if we're able to see our work for what it is, and not more than that, to see it as a gift from God that yields us temporary pleasures of food and drink, well, then we can take some satisfaction in it. Then we can actually enjoy it. So that's where we need to start. Okay? We start to enjoy our work by recognizing that we cannot find ultimate satisfaction in our work. But there are some more things that we can do in order to find satisfaction in our work. And the passage that we're looking at today is going to give us at least four, uh, four pieces of advice for finding satisfaction. So if you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can turn to where we left off last week in Ecclesiastes 4.4. 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. All right. So I said this gives us four ways to find satisfaction in our work. Way number one, don't work for envy's sake. Don't work for envy's sake. The teacher says, I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. All of us have work that we have to do. But there's a kind of work that a lot of us do that is totally unnecessary. And it's work that's motivated by envy. Work that's motivi motivated by envy is not work that's done for the purpose of survival. It's not done for the purpose of enjoyment. It's work for the sake of comparison. It's working that, so that we can think to ourselves, I'm better than my neighbor. I'm more successful than my neighbor. And the teacher wants us to realize this kind of work is worthless, meaningless, chasing after the wind. If anything, it makes life miserable. Some of you know what it's like to work in an environment where everyone is motivated by envy. It's terrible. You can't trust anyone. You go to work in fear. Someone who seems like your buddy one day is stabbing you in the back the next. Everybody suffers in that kind of environment. So here's a question for us to think about. You might want to write this down to ponder it on your own time. Is there anything that I'm working for that I would lose interest in if, one, 
No one, in the world, no one else in the world had it. And two, if I got it, no one else would ever know. I wouldn't be able to brag about it on Facebook or anything like that. If the answer is yes, then that is work that is for envy's sake. It's motivated by comparison, not by survival, not by enjoyment, not even really for want of the thing itself that you're working for, but for the sake of comparison. And that is a meaningless chasing after the wind. So as much as we are working for envy's sake, we need to try to root that kind of work out of our lives because it's not going to bring us satisfaction. Second piece of advice for finding satisfaction in work, don't work too little and don't work too much. Don't work too little and don't work too much. Verse 5 might have confused you when we first read it. It definitely confused me the first time I read it. It says, the fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So what's that about? What we have here are two proverbs that are meant to correct opposite errors that have been put together. So the first one corrects the error of laziness, and the second one corrects the error of being a workaholic. Um, let's look at the first one. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. So folded hands here represents inactivity. Right? That's a, it's a posture of non-activity. If you walk into a room and someone's just sitting there like this, you know they're probably not getting any work done. Right? And the, the proverb is saying, if we keep our, our hands folded enough, then we ruin ourselves. And actually, the literal translation of this proverb is even more dramatic. It says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Uh, which is a dramatic way of saying, if you don't work, Eventually, you have nothing to eat but your own body. You have nothing to offer but your own body, which I hope doesn't sound like a good option to any of us, right? The teacher is being dramatically clear. He's saying laziness is a bad choice. If we can work, we should. If we don't work, we have nothing to offer, nothing to give. Now, I want to acknowledge, I want to be sensitive here that some of us might not be able to do much work right now. You know, maybe uh, because of a disability, maybe because we're having trouble finding employment. And if that's the case, then I don't want this uh, to bring shame on us or make us feel terrible about ourselves. But what we have to keep in mind is if we are deliberately shirking responsibility in life, if we're capable, capable of working and we're just choosing laziness, the teacher wants us to realize that is foolish. And you're not going to find satisfaction in that. Is it satisfying to eat your own body? No, it is not, right? You will not find satisfaction in this way of living. On the other hand, we need to avoid the opposite extreme. The second proverb, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So in this proverb, the handfuls represent what you own, okay? So what this is saying, to paraphrase, is it's better to have less and be able to rest than to have a lot and to be constantly toiling. Better to have a small house and an old car and to actually be able to rest in the evening and on the weekends than to have a big house and a luxury car 
and to just constantly be working all the time, never be able to enjoy it. If we have a choice between those two options, we need to realize the one that will bring us more satisfaction, more contentment, is the first option. Now, I realize some of us feel like we're constantly striving just so we can have one handful, right? And that is a reality for some of us. But if we have a choice between a life with a balance of work and tranquility or a life that's just all work but we have a lot of stuff, the first option is the way to go. Tranquility, that word is an interesting word. It refers to those times in our lives when we just get to take a break from our striving and enjoy the fruit of our work, right? Those times where we get to take a deep breath and enjoy the gifts of life, enjoy a meal, enjoy a conversation with friends, a book, a game, a sporting event, a movie, a hike. And the teacher is saying that a satisfying life is a life that is a mixture of tranquility and striving. Now, like I said, some of us might be in a situation where we can't reduce our striving and still put food on the table. Uh, but some of us are striving a lot, more than we need to, and it's not because we can't put food on the table. It's because we're trying to have two handfuls of stuff when we really just need one. And we need to ask ourselves, how can I let go of one of those handfuls of stuff so that I can lead a more satisfying and, at times, tranquil life? I remember once, long time ago, I was talking to someone whose sister had recently gotten engaged. And he said, my family, we're not sure how we feel about him. And so I asked him some questions about this fiance, and he explained that he was a nice guy as far as the family could tell. Uh, he had a job, he seemed to treat his sister well, but his family was concerned that he might not be driven enough. And I still remember this one line from, from the conversation. My friend said, we want to know, will he work three jobs if he needs to? so that his wife and children can have nice things. I can't remember anything from the rest of that conversation <laughs> except for that line. But when I think back on it, what I want to say is, you know what's a really nice thing? A husband and father that actually has a relationship with his family. That's a really nice thing, right? Better one handful of stuff and moments of tranquility with dad than two handfuls of stuff and no dad, because he's always working. There are a lot of people who go to therapists and counselors and pastors, and they say something like this. They say, my mom and dad were never there for me. They were always busy. They were always working. And I'm an adult now, and I'm still not over it. I still carry wounds from that that I don't know what to do with. But no one ever goes to a therapist or counselor or pastor and says, Oh, my parents never bought me the designer sneakers that I wanted when I was in junior high, and I'm still not over it. It doesn't happen, right? Better one handful and tranquility than two handfuls and toil. Better cheap sneakers and a relationship with dad than Adidas Yeezys and a dad who's always working. Third piece of advice for finding satisfaction in our work, work is better when it's done for others, too. 
Work is better when it's done for others too. Remember verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. What the teacher is saying here is that there is something deeply unsatisfying about toiling only for ourselves, especially when we need to toil a lot. If we ask, for whom am I toiling? And the answer is, just me. We're going to feel an emptiness in that. But when we know that other people are benefiting from the work that we're doing, it makes the work that we're doing more satisfying. It motivates us. I'm sure that any of us who are are parents can identify with this. Uh, I don't have kids, but I'm sure that our toil is a bit more meaningful when we know that our children are depending on it. But being a parent isn't the only way that we bring meaning to our work. We can work to help benefit our parents, our grandparents, our friends, our neighbors, our churches, the poor, or all the above, right? We just have to be intentional about connecting the work that we're doing in some way to others' benefit. So whether that's in actually literally doing work for those people, right, or in taking the money that we earn from our job and then using it in some way to bless those people. There's this strange tension, I think, that exists in the heart of every human being, uh, which is this, okay, we're selfish, but at the same time, we have this longing to serve. We have this longing, uh, even if we're not conscious of it, to feel like we're contributing to others' benefit, to feel like somebody depends on us. And I would say it's a tension between our fallen, sinful nature and the image of God that we're made in. Our fallen, sinful nature is always trying to pull us towards selfishness, but the image of God that we are made in wants to be like God, wants to reflect the character of God. And we know through Jesus Christ what God is like. God is one who serves, right? Jesus Christ washed the feet of his disciples. He offered his life on our behalf. And when we give of ourselves, because we're made in the image of God, there's something that is satisfying and meaningful about that. I think this tension that's in the human heart, we see it evident in little kids uh, a lot. Again, I don't have kids, but from what I've observed and what I remember from my own childhood, Kids are self-centered, yes, that is definitely true, but they have these moments when they want to help, uh, usually with something they are not qualified to help with, and that will actually make the job more difficult if they do help, right? Like a two-year-old that wants to help shovel the driveway. And if dad says, okay, come on, buddy, come help me shovel the driveway, that kid's going to be on cloud nine, right? He'll say, mommy, look, I'm helping, I'm helping daddy and he'll be filled with pride and satisfaction. And we adults are just big kids. The same desires are in us, right? We're selfish, 
but there's also this part of us that longs to serve and that takes pride and satisfaction in serving. So, if our work feels worthless, if it feels unsatisfying, we have to ask, how can I connect my work to serving others in some way? How can I either give some of my energy and time to work for others' benefit or use some of the money that I make to bless others? Because if we can find ways that we can consciously connect our work to benefiting others, we will feel greater satisfaction. And then finally, a fourth way to find satisfaction in work is work is better when it's done with others. Work is better when it's done with others. Verses 9 through 12 said, Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This is a passage that's read a lot at weddings. And there's nothing wrong with that. But because of that, people often assume that this is specifically about marriage. And it's really about something much more general than that, which is friendship and companionship. You know, people can assume that it's about marriage because it talks about lying down together. But there's really nothing romantic or sexual in those words there. Uh, In those days, people, if they were traveling alone through the desert, at night the desert would get very cold, and if you had nobody to lie down with, you were probably going to freeze. Some modern travelers know what this is like. Last weekend, Sarah and I uh, spent an overnight on the Appalachian Trail, and we talked a little bit with a guy who was hiking the whole thing all the way from Georgia to Maine. And he said that he had started in March and that there was one day on the trail where it was extremely cold and that night he was in one of the shelters, which if you've been on the Appalachian Trail, you know shelter is a very generous word for what those things are. Um, And it got down to negative 17 degrees. And he said that everybody that was in that shelter was huddled together for the sake of survival. You know, obviously nothing romantic or sexual about that. And that's what the teacher is talking about here. He's saying that companionship helps us to survive in this cold, dangerous world of toil. It makes it possible for us to make it through it. Work is better when it's done with others. Now, I don't want to sound naive because I know that the wrong kind of companions can actually make your work more difficult, uh, especially if they are working for envy's sake or if they're only working for themselves. But if we have companions in our work who recognize the wisdom that we've been talking about today, uh, those companions can make work way more effective, way more fun, and way more satisfying. You know, this is something that's really interesting. And when the teacher talks about almost every aspect of life, he says that that thing is meaningless. He says that it's hevel, it's vapor. But not this aspect of life. When the teacher talks about friendship, he never says, this too 
is meaningless. This too is Hevel, a chasing after the wind. And I think that should remind us of the priority that we need to put on relationships in our life. Relationships are what really matter. You know, everything is passing away, but the Bible teaches that the, the people that we interact with are going to exist in some way even after death, even after everything else has become vapor. So if we want our lives and our work to be significant and meaningful, we have to orient them around what isn't just going to pass away, what isn't just vapor. And what's not vapor? It's people, right? It's God and people. Not stuff, not money, not fame, not power, not social status, not envy, but people. And serving, loving, sharing, and enjoying life together. Let's pray. Lord, this life is filled with work, filled with striving, filled with toil. And Lord, we want the work that we do to be as meaningful as possible. Lord, we don't want to expend all our energy on worthless things. We want to be able to experience tranquility and satisfaction in this life. And we know that our hearts long for things that this world cannot give us. And I, I pray that you would set us free from the desire, uh, the, the pursuit of finding ultimate satisfaction in things of this world. And as we do, Lord, I pray that we would be able to enjoy those moments of tranquility and satisfaction in our work. God, help us to find meaningful work, uh, to do it not just for ourselves, but for others as well, and as, as much as possible to do it with others and to enjoy it. God, we thank you for the good gifts in life. We pray that you would enable us to appreciate them. In Jesus' name, amen.